Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Two guests this week. Uh, I really enjoyed these conversations. Both really, really interesting people. First up is Chelsea Janes. She has been the Nationals beat reporter for the Washington Post since 2014. But starting at the beginning of the new year in 2019, she is moving to the National Politics beat at the Post and will be covering the 2020 presidential campaign and will most likely be attached or assigned to a candidate. And we discuss that move, uh, one of the more interesting moves for a sports media person. So this podcast starts with Chelsea Janes, and then we finish up with Bruce Feldman. He is a writer, reporter, columnist for The Athletic, works with me there, also a sideline reporter for Fox Sports and absolutely one of the foremost college football voices writers in the country. And we have a long discussion about many topics um, rather than sort of give them here. Uh, just listen in. I think you're really going to enjoy that. Bruce, of course, is the co-host with Stu Mandel of The Audible. So a lot of podcasting experience there. And we talk about his podcast as well. But uh, it's always great to catch up with Bruce and really smart guy. And I enjoyed that. So Chelsea Janes of The Washington Post to start. And then Bruce Feldman of The Athletic and Fox Sports coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, and as promised at the top, we bring in Chelsea Jane. She has been a, as I said, a national beat reporter for the Washington Post since 2014. Uh, the reason I wanted her on this podcast, obviously in addition to her excellent coverage at the Post, is she has a really, really interesting job change coming up. After the new year, she'll be a politics and campaign reporter for the Post covering the 2020 election. Uh, you know, if you're a journalist... I'm not sure there are better jobs in covering a presidential campaign for the Washington Post. Just that in itself sounds incredibly cool. And Chelsea Janes joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Chelsea, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, so before we get to your your job switch, um, no, yeah, I take that back. Actually, instead of instead of before, let, let's actually start. So you you have been on the Nationals beat. For four years, you've established yourself as a baseball writer. You have what is an absolutely fantastic job. I mean, people in Washington love, obviously, the Nationals. You're covering a major league team. You're out, in my opinion, the best newspaper in the country. And then you decide that you'd like to do something else. So as specific as you can, can you take listeners into sort of your mindset as to why you wanted to move from covering major league baseball to covering politics? Yeah, you know, it's. At the Post, they try to rotate people off the baseball beat every four to five years. Um, my predecessor, Adam Kilgore, you know, did it almost five years. And I think it's just sort of a, a long time and it's constructed now. Um, so they try to keep people fresh. So I, I knew my time was near. Um, but as I, I sort of considered options, uh, it was the idea was sort of raised like, hey, if, if you have interest elsewhere, you don't have to consider options in sports. And, and that's kind of one of the reasons I completely agree with you um, that the post is one of the best places to be in the country because there are there are options you know you're not necessarily put onto one track and, and left there forever so um, as it kind of you know as the season went along um, the the campaign seemed like the most natural place where there would be openings and, and where I could make a jump and I figured you know it's I love baseball it's been a huge part of my life since I was young I'm not leaving it because I am sick of it. And I also think that, that being at the post in a, in a historical moment like this, uh, there were there were times when I realized I was one step away from sort of 
the fray from all the action. And, you know, if journalism is the first draft of history, I think I, I would have been disappointed not to at least, you know, get a little piece of that draft um, over the next couple of years when I had the opportunity. So, um, yeah, it, it was an interesting decision. It wasn't necessarily something I had targeted my whole life, but, but when it became a real opportunity, it was, in my mind, sort of a no-brainer to, to, to make that leap and, and see what I could do on the other front. All right. So, you know, understanding that, you know, you might only be able to go sort of go so far because we're going to be a little bit in the weeds, but as specific as you can, how, so how does this happen? Do you have to go through some kind of hierarchy where you talk to your sports editor, you let the sports editor know you're interested in this. Can you literally go up to like the national desk at the Washington post? And they obviously know who you are from your byline, but they may not know you and you let them know your interest. Like, so how does it from a concept conceptual idea become reality how does it work yeah it's interesting i i actually did not um you know the the idea didn't originate with me uh which is one reason i think i i felt more intrigued you know i think if i had just sat there and said wow that would have been cool i don't know that i would have necessarily pushed for it um i think you know it's hard when you're comfortable and, and doing something you love and you know have you know connections and sources it's it's like why why shake that up but um, they were they were going to build out a pretty big campaign team for the 2020 election, um, and they knew that very early on. So as I sort of just went in and, and asked questions, you know, where where might we be thinking I fit? You know, where might things move? Um, it it just sort of came up, and I was lucky enough to go to the Olympics this year, which was sort of another experiment, I think, where they said, see how you like it. Would you you know maybe go abroad? Would you know something like that? So they were they were just you know the the head editors at the Post were sort of incredibly open and gracious with me about, you know, don't don't limit the possibilities. Um, see see what might actually interest you moving forward. So um, it it actually was something, you know. I, I remember they sort of floated, you know, maybe in 2019, you know, you'd be in Iowa, and I I kind of laughed it off at the time, you know, thinking, of course, like you're not going to want me on on that campaign, but. Um, I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to do that if the opportunity was there, not thinking it ever would be. And then as, as you know, the year kind of went along and the logistics of, you know, I think they're adding six or seven people to their campaign team. As that became more clear, it was like, oh, there might actually be a spot here. And um, so I, I, you know, I, I raised my hand and said I'd be interested. I, I had to go through the application um, like everyone else and interview and all that. But, um, yeah, it was it was them being open to the possibility, them being kind of the head editors at the Post who oversee all the departments, um, and then the people who run the national department. Um, if they think it's crazy, they haven't told me that, so um, they've <laughs> been great about it, too. And I think it, it sort of benefits everyone to see people moving around, too, that, you know, someone who comes up in sports doesn't have to feel like they're always going to be in sports, or someone who's in politics doesn't have to feel like they can't go and do sports or food or whatever it is. And, um you know, I know they're very. We're very lucky at the post with the financial resources that we have uh, right now, thanks to you know Jeff Bezos and and what he's done since he bought the paper. And I think one way they've really utilized those is to um, not really impose limits and see see who fits where and see where they can kind of get the most out of people. And I was very lucky they were willing to uh, listen when I raised my hand and said, "Hey, I think that might might be fun or might be a really good experience for me." When do you specifically start, and have they told you any kind of specifics on your assignment? <laughs> they, I, I start officially, I think, January 7th, 
But what happens on January 7th, I do not know. I think they, they're sorting things out and they expect a lot of, you know, I think we all kind of, if we, if you're watching the, the craziness that is going to be the, you know, the race for the Democratic nomination, there's going to be a lot of people involved in that. And I think that field will clarify itself a little bit over the next few weeks. But, you know, who knows? It won't, it won't be clear for a long time. But I think they're going to get a better sense of, you know, where they need people and, and how to allocate, you know, the people they have. So I haven't heard a lot. Um, I'm assuming I'll be on a plane to Iowa, and I'm just sort of bracing myself for that mentally. But uh, I've heard Des Moines nice, so I think I'll – or nicer than you'd expect. So I, I'll, uh, I'll be looking forward to it. Hmm. One of the things, obviously, that um, that you're going to have to develop and that will become sort of a daily challenge, an exciting challenge, but a daily challenge all the same is sourcing. You know, you're coming from a place where you've been established on a beat. You have obviously sources throughout the Nationals, I'm sure, and throughout Major League Baseball. I have no idea if you have any sources when it comes to politics. So in terms of your blueprint or game plan, uh, what are you thinking about? And have you talked to some political reporters in terms of, you know, how how do you start establishing sourcing when you have not worked this beat before? Absolutely. I, you know, I think I'm going to have about 38 coffee dates a week over the next couple of weeks uh, after the new year to try to kind of just pick everyone's brains. And I think, you know, I, I think the post is great about letting people move, but they also have the luxury of just this incredible institutional knowledge on this front where, you know, going back, you know, any generation of writers you look at has been there before. And, um, you know, I've already heard some of the stories and, and so, you know, and even in 2016, there were people that kind of got thrown in unexpected places and, and had to swim. So, um, yeah, I plan to just absolutely ask everyone, you know, how to do these things because I'm not, it's kind of no mystery that I, I don't have that network there. You know, I, I, I know a little bit, I can read as much as I want, but you're right that the sources are the key and, you know, they don't make themselves. So I, I definitely just plan to ask a lot of questions and, and show up and be there as much as I can, but it's, it's something that's going to require work. And I, I think there's a, there's certainly a risk involved here in jumping from somewhere where you are well sourced to somewhere where you're not, because, you know, it's, it's not easy and it takes so much time, but, um, I, I'm low on a totem pole that includes a lot of people that are very smart and good at, good at that sourcing and good at what they do. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to lead on them as much as they'll let me. One of the things that I want to, um, you agree to come on the podcast, uh, that I wanted to ask you about, cause I'm, sort of just fascinated by this, and I'm sure mm -hmm. you have thought about this. It's sort of twofold when it comes to social media. Mm -hmm. Part one is that once you start covering politics, you are going to hear from all sorts of people, especially if you are active on Twitter, as your political um, colleagues at The Post will tell you. And I get that you, um, you deal with this when it comes to covering a baseball team, but this is going to be, I think, maybe even a different kind of intensity when it comes to social media interaction with whoever's out there. So that's sort of my larger framework to asking a couple things. One, did you or did the post ask you to go through your social media feed to see if you have said anything about either a candidate or about politics that might get you in a little bit of trouble, given that obviously before this assignment you were not covering politics, you were covering baseball? You know, when I say I, I never, expe you know, expected, I guess, to be on politics, I also never ruled it out. So I, I, I have definitely operated um, with all of that in mind over the years on social media. Um, I've, I think I've been very careful 
uh, not to dive into those waters um, as much as I could. And, and that doesn't, you know, that, you know, as well as anyone that sports, you know, there's issues that come up and you feel compelled to say something. But I think even right. within that framework, I didn't really dive in. And, you know, we, we, the post is very, you know, as kind of an institution, even trickling down to sports is very much, hey, don't do anything to make things harder on your colleagues. Don't, you know, even if you never think you're going to cover politics, you're part of the post. Um, so, you you know, you can't just kind of throw whatever you want out there. And I, that's something I've always taken to heart and I never wanted to do anything disqualifying. <laughs> so the short answer is, no, I, I haven't heard anyone say, hey, go scrub things. But I have also sort of been internally very aware of, of that over the years and, and, and never wanted to do anything to preclude opportunities like this one. So I'll definitely look back and, and continue to look back at everything and make sure. But I, you know, there was never a day where I felt I could be flippant. So I'm hoping that there was never a time where I was. That's yeah. I, I, I admire that. That's smart. Um, as someone who made a decision a long time ago, at least on a couple of political figures that I was sort of just going to say my piece and and let it be. I, I could not, in good conscience, cover a couple of candidates given what I have, uh, uh, or maybe not candidates, but including people who hold office, uh, given what I've tweeted about them. So, so I think that's really that was smart on your part, and and interesting if you um, if these were any kind of designs for you down the road. The other thing is, or the other part of that paradigm is, um, have you talked to anybody on the? politics desk just about the fact that the attention on you when you are covering this stuff is going to be different there's a lot of places that obviously will read every single word that you write and try to determine if you have biases and other stuff now I get that there's some of that in sports but it's it's different it's just um it's sort of a different kind of paradigm than what you're going to get and I wonder again if um while that's kind of cool and you want people to read your stuff you know, you will be entering what could be a really intense and at times often nasty place when it comes to social media. For sure. I I think that's been, it's really funny what people's reaction to this, you know, move are. I mean, there's the, you know, congratulations, that sounds great. And then there's the, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And I think the people in the latter camp are often worried about the backlash and sort of the, the vitriol that will, will come my way. But um, it's funny. I mean, even just covering figure skating for a week last year, I got called a snowflake and a neo-Nazi in the same week. So it's wow. like, congrats. I, right. I mean, yeah, I consider, I guess I have mass appeal in that way, but Real, um, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the rare double that one can yeah. get called, but that on the same week. Right. I'm versatile. Um, but no, <laughs> I mean, to that end, it's like, I think, um, I don't know if I'm ready for it. I don't know that you can be, but I guess, my default, um, and I think as you get more comfortable on a beat, like on the Nationals, you can opine a little bit more than than you would as just kind of an introductory reporter, but that's sports. That's opining about things like, you know, whether they should trade for a second baseman. You know, it's it's the stakes are so low, and in a place like this, you, you can't, you know, in politics, you can't waver into that. If, if I'm a campaign reporter, I'm a campaign reporter. I am... I am telling you what I see. And I the way I've sort of thought about it is whatever internal biases any of us have, I, I you know, I'm a voter. Right? I I want to know about these people. I want to know the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, I I, I want to make an informed choice and I assume that you know, there are people with agendas out there, but if I, I hope that if I operate on that front of, you know, here's what I know. This is all I know. When you decide what you want, that I won't give anybody anything to nitpick. 
I can't do anything about if if people find stuff that isn't there. I can sort of only control my end. And um, I think I've been lucky enough to sort of establish that mindset because, you know, again, low stakes, definitely a different level. But sports fans are are nasty in that way, you know, a little bit and, and say, you're a homer, you're not nice enough, you're too harsh on this guy. And, you know, when you're young and starting, that bothers you, you know, and, and I think the, the way I came to think about it was, I, I don't, I can't control what you read into my words, I can sort of only present what I know. And, and I hope to do the same on politics. And I don't, I don't expect anything, you know, internal or, or from the people around me who have opinions to to influence that because it's not my job to say what people around me think or what I think. It's 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 definitely my job to learn and, and present what I know because that's what I'd want someone to do for me. And I think that's what a lot of post reporters uh, try very hard to do. How much um, how much do you think your experience in covering a major league beat and particularly the travel, the grind, <laughs> the lack of sleep is? I, I'm being serious. Is going to help you in your current role because it's. If there's anything I can think of that's a real parallel to maybe covering a campaign, it would honestly be covering Major League Baseball just because of the slog, the amount of time that you're away from your family, the amount of time that you're on the road. I, weirdly enough, maybe weirdly is not the right term, but I think I think what you have done is actually pretty good training for what you're about to do, and I wonder if you see it as the same. It's so interesting because outside of the sports department, when I when I've talked to people about this, you know, everyone in, in politics and news and stuff is like, oh, my gosh, it's, it's such a grind. And everyone in sports says it's going to be fine. Like, you, you can't be more. And I think it can be different, but it, it is sort of true that it can't be more. You know, when you look at the number percentage of my life I've spent in a Marriott over the past few years, it's pretty disgusting already. So <laughs> right. whether that whether that Marriott's in Miami or Des Moines might matter to me might matter to me, but ultimately, like, to my body clock and my stamina, it's probably not going to matter a whole lot. So um, I do think that one reason I felt like I could make this move now is, like, my stamina will not be higher. I'm used to that life now. I, You know, I, I live out of suitcases and have for a very long time. Um, or I, you know, just throw everything on my floor and, and then put it back in a suitcase. Um, but, you know, it's it's it is it does feel like, you know, the amount of content you have to generate on a baseball beat, sort of the amount of... Um, you know, the minutiae you have to focus on each day to make that day meaningful to people, um, you know, to give context, to give, you know, insight into what each day means, I think is very similar to, to the campaign from what I've heard. But I, I do, I would, you know, other than having done a campaign, I'm not sure what else could prepare you better, you know, logistically, I guess, than, than the baseball beat, because it is a grind and, and you sort of become numb to it over the years. And I think that's, that's where I am. Uh, all right. So one more on this. And again, I realize you're not, you may, you, you probably don't know the answer to this, but I'd just be interested in taking your temperature at the moment. Do you imagine that you're a return to sports or do you think this is a permanent shift away from sports into other kinds of writing? I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm a planner. So I, you know, when I decided to make this move, I said, well, what happens in 2020? And, and they said, well, you will figure it out in 2020. And, you know, sports is an option. Um, and I, I was pushing really hard to figure out if I wanted to go back or what the layout would be. And I realized I, I can't, you know, I have to see how this all goes. And, and I'm really excited about politics right now. But I, I, I left sports not because I was sick of them in any way or, or felt like it wasn't right for me. I think I, I really appreciate them probably as much as anyone in terms of what they, what they provide community-wise and all that corny stuff. 
Um, so I, I expect that I'm not quite done on sports and, and maybe there's a hybrid role to be had um, in some way. But, you know, I think I again, I didn't leave because I, I didn't appreciate them or think they were important or was sick of them. I, so I, I think, you know, especially baseball, it has a place in my heart um, and always will. So I think I think I'll be back at some point. Um, one last thing, actually, on this, uh, just because, again, I, 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 I love reading politics and I um, I'm, I'm fascinated by this world. Are there, I, I would imagine that you've obviously been reading the posts, uh, mm-hmm. political section probably for as long as you've been there, if not before, is there someone in the field right now or some, or multiple people who in your ideal world, you would like to cover your new beat the way they do? Oh man. You know, it's funny you say that it's, <laughs> we, I, I was lucky enough to get to meet a lot of the the post-political writers who I've never met because I, you know, in baseball, you're never in the office and and we're importantly on a different floor than they are and all that. So um, I got to put names to faces a little bit and I was a little, I was a little like, wow, you know, these are the people that I read every day. I mean, it's, it, it genuinely is everyone. I, I really couldn't give you one name. I think, you know, obviously I think, you know, if you've, if you followed the white house, you know, you've seen Phil Rucker and people like that. And, you know, I got to meet him and sort of, I'm sure I overwhelmed him with praise because I, I just, you know, you read these people and you, as someone who is not in that world and you think, wow, how did, how'd they get that? Or who, you know, how'd they get so much good a sense of people that, you know, don't seem to open up much, but um, truly all those guys and, you know, Carol Lennig who's won a couple of posters, I think, yeah, right? amazing. I and, and said, oh, I'm sorry I didn't recognize you. I was like, you're sorry you didn't recognize me. <laughs> like, how would you recognize me? You know, I, you're the, you know, you're kind of the star. So, yeah, it's it's really all those guys, and and loath as I am to say it, uh, you know, people at the New York Times too who do a great job, and um, you know, obviously Mike Schmidt's been a, a baseball crossover, who's done a great job. So there there's tons of people out there, and um, I really couldn't give you one, which is a cop out answer, which I you know the kind of answer I'm sure I'll hear a lot on the campaign trail. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, you know as like sort of a journalism junkie, uh, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, the opportunity to like talk to somebody like Daniel Dale or. Carol Lenny yep. is like really exciting and mm-hmm. uh, I'm a little, you know, sort of a little starstruck there where to be very honest with you, like if uh, uh, Drake or Matt Damon walked down the street, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, you know, nice <laughs> to see you. So it's just very weird. Like the, uh, you know, the people sort of, we can get starstruck by and then in other cases, right. and you know, this just from covering, you know, you cover a major league beat sort of like fame, you know, or conventional fame sort of really is just not really that big a deal anymore but uh yeah right. the the people who work at the post and cover politics to me they're like uh they're superstars um all right i want to um i want to ask you a couple questions about covering uh covering baseball mm-hmm. and so you covered the nationals for four years with the post but before that just in doing a little bit of research uh you did work for you work for mlb.com or did you work for like one of the teams specifically um, I think it's you work for MLB.com, but you kind of intern covering one of the teams. Okay, what was your what was your team when you were in MLB.com? I was in San Diego covering the Padres in 2012, I believe. Oh yeah, I mean, what a I mean, what a tough assignment. I mean, were you able to somehow get through the 74 degree weather every day, or was that a struggle? Yeah, no, it was brutal. There were a few days I had to bring a jacket, <laughs> and that was 
that was the extent of that adversity. But no, it was it was really cool. I grew up in New England, so I wanted to get out to California and stay as long as I could. And uh, nice. I think I made it, you know, a year plus. But it was, yeah, that was a pretty special place to be. As I, as I look outside my Toronto window here and it's snowing. Lovely. Right, right. Um, <laughs> So, uh, all right. So, so you know, a couple different teams, but obviously, I think people who are listening to this will know you from the Nationals. The Nationals, mm-hmm. to me, are like a, a fascinating baseball team to cover because the the fan base is really, really passionate about the team. They've been pretty good during your duration, but they've also been pretty disappointing during mm-hmm. your duration, given what the expectations were. And they've also been a clubhouse that people kind of. Uh, at least in your market, are a little they're just kind of obsessive, you know, whether it's Bryce Harper or mm-hmm. Scherzer or whoever. So let's just sort of start off with, as a general rule, from your end as a baseball reporter, what did you think of the clubhouse in terms of media access, um, players uh, talking to the press, and access to management, managers, et cetera? I think my first few years, access was a little bit more limited. Um, they do have a lot of uh, homegrown superstars, Harper, Strasburg, people like that, who who kind of always were treated a little differently, and I think with good reason early on, right? But, I mean, Harper and Strasburg, you can't get much more hype as a kid, you know, coming up than they did. And, and the protectiveness just sort of continued. So I think in that way, it was it was a little bit difficult to crack at times, um, just because, the you know, the organization has its guard up. But I... I actually found it to be fine. You know, I don't know a whole lot differently, so it's hard to compare. I think there are probably teams where superstars are more accessible than they were than Harper, Strasburg, and people like that. But but then people like Max Scherzer are as accessible as it gets and, and willing to talk and, and tell you you're stupid and sort of everything you need as a beat <laughs> reporter. So it for me, it was never as problematic as I think it seems sometimes on the outside. But I also think it was really loaded with rich characters in a way that maybe a couple of years from now everyone will look back and say wow what a what a few years that was just in terms of uh yeah characters and drama and and you know it's it's a little soap operatic in some ways you know so it's been an adventure but i i think for me it was not quite as you know it wasn't there wasn't quite the same moat around that clubhouse you know, when you're there every single day for a couple of years, as it might have seemed like there would be just from the outside and, and the reports of, you know, the incidents that popped up every now and then. One of those sort of the, the subtexts for this franchise forever, maybe subtext isn't the right word, but maybe subplots or something, mm-hmm. it was Bryce Harper's free agency. And sort of, you know, everybody, <laughs> for, it feels like that sort of story had been going on for like four years and now it's arrived. Now he is a free agent. What was that? particular story like for you sort of covering this guy but at the same time there was sort of this larger story that always loomed and that would be you know what is going to happen with this guy in the um in the winter of 2018 2019 will he stay will he go etc it was all consuming um in a really powerful way i i've joked with a lot of people that i couldn't leave this beat until bryce signed just because um you know it's it's been everything. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, where is Bryce Harper going? And I think I, I, it's a really hard story to explain because he's a hard character to explain. I think if he had been a, a guy, a Max Scherzer, or even, I mean, even Manny Machado, I think is sometimes a little easier to read, but Bryce is just, 
he's a he's a young guy who changes his mind and 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 his moods swing and he's hard to predict. So as everyone's reading into every word he said, I'm sitting there thinking this guy's going to change his mind tomorrow, you know. And you'd see these articles come out and everyone be like, oh man, they got this scoop on Bryce and. You know, it's just everyone's always there. You know, the focus is always on Harper and and the incremental ads that would come out every once in a while from various, you know, papers you'd have to react to. And and we're sitting there like, hey, this this doesn't mean anything. You know, these this you know time's gonna pass and things are gonna change. And it's it was all consuming in a way I didn't know one baseball player could be. You know, growing up watching it, I, I assume it was like what Alex Rodriguez was. You know, it's but um from my perspective, it is sort of like the white whale, right? It's like, you know, after all this time, you know, can you just sign so I can be free, you know, on a personal <laughs> level. It's like, it's like, I think truly the questions probably started like my first year, you know, is when it really started to pick up and it's only escalated. So he's a fascinating character that I think people, you know, analyze and analyze and analyze and, you know, forgetting that it's a 25, 26 year old guy who's trying to figure everything out and probably hasn't analyzed himself as much as we have. So it's, um, it's been crazy. And I, I don't know what I'll do when I'm not writing Bryce Harper's name, you know, five times a day, but it's going to be different. And I, I truly cannot let go of that beat in my mind until he signs because it's, it's just always been there. How would you evaluate your professional relationship with him? Um, I think we were fine. I, you know, we weren't close. Um, I, you know, the last two years, he really kind of shut, shut down for everyone, I think, except people that he had, you know, really longstanding relationships with in the media. I think free agency loomed on him in a way that he'll always downplay, but uh, it was pretty obvious that he just, you know, wasn't the same guy, wasn't make baseball fun again, Bryce anymore. He he didn't want to talk too much. He didn't want to say the wrong thing. So, you know, I, which I totally understand, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what he'd say, but I, I think we were fine. And, you know, he, there were some times this year where things got a little testy just because he, you know, he didn't run out of ground ball or he was struggling. And, and when you have to ask about slumps and, and effort, it, it never really goes well. Um, but by the end, I think we were, we were fine. And, and I have a lot of respect for him because I think when you're there every day, the one thing you see that you can't really convey is, is what he deals with on a daily basis in terms of attention and pressure and, I, I know I'd collapse under it, and I, I don't know how he hasn't, frankly. Uh, I want to ask you about Patrick Corbin, but this is just my mm-hmm. one aside. You're, you're welcome to weigh in. But, like, when, because when, we, in, living in New York, we had a lot of writers, a couple sports media people in particular, who sort of would, would write about effort and, like, really mm-hmm. get obsessed by, like, Robinson Canoda's run out of ball, or, uh, you know, obviously you saw the, uh, all the stories about Manny Machado. But, like, if you step back and think about it, like, I've never not met a sports writer who, like, maybe, like, on one day just didn't have it and, like, didn't write their best piece. It's the exact mm-hmm. same equivalent of maybe not running out a singular ground ball after 600 at-bats. But the sort of obsessiveness that people write, and it's all sort of steeped in, like, this, in my opinion, sort of bullshit of, like, oh, the game used to be played a certain way. I guarantee in 1929, Luke Gehrig did not run out a ground ball on a on a certain mm-hmm. game. We just don't have footage of that, but that's always kind of fascinating to me. The, um, the, uh, what I would sort of call the over coverage of, of effort, but, it, and a lot of times it's sort of usually, um, it, it ends up trying to ascribe some kind of character to people, which I think a lot of times this is just my take becomes character assassination. I wrestle with this one. Um, you know, Bryce has obviously been the target of a lot of that, whether it's from us, what, from anyone else. You know, I I agree with you that there is this fascination with it. 
I actually don't know that the the kind of most most guttural and visceral kind of reactions like that come from oh the game used to be played this way I, I honestly when I hear that you know kind of rage from fans or even writers on my end a lot of it is you know you're paying this guy 300 million and he can't run out of ground ball so that it, right. you know, some kid out there sees he's throwing it the right way and and with Harper you know it's it it's arbitrary it's 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 emotional but I do think there's a part of you that knows when a guy is trying and when he's not and for Harper, there were just times this year where he was in the outfield, and it was evident that he wasn't all there. And, and whether, and again, like you, like you said, there are probably days where it seems like I'm not all there, and and there are probably really good reasons for that, or not on my end of you know personal stuff that's happening, or, or stressful things outside of, or just me being, you know, not at my best that day. And you know, the reason why I think kind of gets lost um, because you know players are never going to delve into that stuff, but. But there were just undeniable moments at which, you know, Harper just was not giving a, a major league effort on defense where his the way he reacted to a ball hit his way was noticeably different than a way somebody else would. And what you make of that is up to you. I mean, he, you know, I, I don't think there's anyone who can argue that guy doesn't work hard because, I you know, he'd come back from the cage after a bad game with his hands red. And, and you can't argue that. But but what do you make of it when you're when you're paying someone to be the face of a franchise? you don't want that face of your franchise to look like he's taking plays off or, or to kind of be that easy to read. And I think, I think that's reasonable. I, I think it's sort of a similar argument to, you know, people saying, well, we can't nitpick all these people, you know, you know, whether it's a Supreme court justice or, or a, a president or whatever, you know, we can't nitpick them on everything or we'll have nobody for those positions. Well, those are probably the people you should nitpick. And, and if you're making a $300 million investment in somebody, that's probably someone you should feel really good about. And, so for me, yes, I, I do think it gets overblown at times, and, and I've probably been a part of it. And I think on players of that level, they're, they're, it's okay to expect that you know they're not going to embarrass you or, or make it look like you know they they take their position for granted, or or that all these fans that come to see them you know aren't going to get their whatever their best is that day. Yeah, well, I appreciate you answering that. It's a really interesting discussion, and it, and, it, um, and it goes into sort of what our own thoughts are about economics and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. different expectations for people who make a certain amount of money um yeah. and it would be a long conversation you could do an entire podcast on that but i but <laughs> right, I, I, right. I i i appreciate you discussing that all the same um what did you as you're leaving the beat now it seems like the nationals um they're gonna most likely lose harper obviously but they signed patrick corbin so they really seem to be loading up on the the pitching side what do you you know, the division's pretty interesting. The Mets are churning there. Uh, they have a new GM. They're trying to bring in some more established players. We'll see what happens there. The Phillies obviously have a ton of money. It's it's an interesting division. And the Nationals have sort of been the class of that division for a long time. What do you expect? I actually think it sets up great for them. Um, I think, you know, we've seen over and over, and it's a fascinating psychological study for them, but, uh, you know, that they don't play well when they're the, the front runners. They also really haven't been pushed. I think that's been an argument over the years when they do make the playoffs that, you know, they're running away with a, a fairly weak division or, you know, when they've edged the Braves, it hasn't even been, you know, that close. And I think they're going to have to work this year, and I think they need it. I think I think that's, you know, they, they're going to have to kind of grind for it. Um, but I, I think that'll be good. You know, no one can sit there and say, well, they won a weak division, you know, as they head into the NLDS or whatever. They're going to have had to scratch and claw. I think also there's a there's a lot of roster turnover there, you know, especially if Harper leaves. You're looking at a very different, very young team with a coaching staff that has had a you know terrible year last year and had to go through all that and then said, we're going to fix this. You know, we're not going to 
we're not going to dig in and say we did it right. We're going to dig in and say we did some stuff wrong. And I, you know, so there's just sort of this like this change in 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 mindset I think happening. And for me, that the math problems have always felt very uh, psychological. You know, I for whatever reason there was more pressure than they could handle, or they got good quickly and then thought they were, you know, had had seemed like decades of history behind them. And it was just it's kind of a weird vibe. But I think as you as you look at their roster and the number of people who've turned over sort of the thirst of the coaching staff to prove itself, whatever that means, you're just looking at a, a very different group and mindset than you've had the last few years in a very different, more competitive division that's going to sort of push them every day in a way they haven't been. So for me, that sets up really well. And I, I think they've done a great job in the roster. I, I, I'm not going to say they're a better team without Bryce, but I think they can really fill some holes with that money. So I think they're in great shape, and maybe this is the year that you see a little bit more out of those guys um, just because of all the changes they've made. All right, two more for you. Uh, we're taping this on December 18th. If you had to guess today, where do you where do you believe Bryce Harper will be playing baseball in 2019? Oh, man. Um, I'll say L.A. I'll say the Dodgers, but it's a very soft answer. <laughs> I, I <laughs> could see the White Sox on a long deal. Um Oh, that's I can't really see the I can't see the Nationals, but that that could always change. So, I I'll say right. LA. Okay, all right. Well, we'll we'll play the tape back down the road, and then uh, oh, I never got to ask you about playing softball at Yale, but we'll uh, oh. maybe maybe for the next unless unless there is is there a particular highlight that uh, your softball you were a catcher, which is always yes. usually like the uh, you know which means you'll be a great manager one day, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> Did you ever? So, what was your best game at Yale in softball? Did you ever have like a five for five kind of game or a three for three or something like that? Yeah, you know what's incredible is I was a terrible hitter. Uh, I did not hit well, and so I, if you look at my stats, I was a one seventy five career hitter. And Ooh, on you, the you, you better you, you better have called a good game or been good in the clubhouse, right? Yes, I was both. <laughs> I like to think I, I brought a lot of intangibles. Um, but uh, actually, I was 175 career hitter with a five for five in my last ever game. So think about wow. that. Think about that for a second. <laughs> Who was that against? What school? Oh, it was probably Brown, but I I'm not 100. I think it was Brown. Five for five though. That's uh, yeah. That's I got a... some generous scoring on one of them, but it was actually pretty legit. And it's just I just don't even my average would have been horrible. I mean, more horrible if it weren't for that. So did you uh, do you have any career college home runs? I do not. No okay. home runs. All right. but, but you had your you had, you had a five uh, five for five. Yeah, intangibles. I banked. Uh, that was that's what I go back to. You know, it's a lot of intangibles. I know. I know it's the Ivy League, but did you ever get a chance to face like some Arizona State Lisa Fernandez type pitcher? We didn't. Um, we didn't in my four years. But actually, the year after I left, they went and faced uh, Washington, who was the number one ranked team in the country. So I missed that Ooh. by a year. But no, we were. Yeah. I don't think we we ever faced the top twenty five team actually. Gotcha. Is, you know, there's some uh, there's some softball stal- stalwarts in the in the uh, sports media. Jessica Mendoza, obviously, you know, yeah, one of the great yeah. hitters, and then uh, Ramona Shelburne, is also right. uh, of ESPN, was a center fielder at Stanford. Those are the two that right. I know. Um, right. So so you're you're not alone in terms of uh, softball alums in the sports media. All right. So here's my last one for you. We're gonna go back to your upcoming job. Uh, this has happened before. Mm-hmm. Have you contemplated or considered it all? Let's say you get assigned a certain candidate, and that candidate like becomes like the Obama candidate, like out of nowhere, 
candidate sort of starts wherever. It could be the Trump candidate, too. Starts wherever. Uh, very low. Not expected to um, eventually be the nominee for his or her party. And then eventually becomes a nominee. And then maybe eventually becomes president. If that happens and you are assigned to that candidate, there is no way the Post is going to let you go back to sports. You know this. You're going <laughs> to basically be with that candidate for a long time. Have you contemplated or thought about that possibility? I have, you know, I think at that point, there's no way I'd let myself go back to sports. You know, I, I mean, those are like once in a lifetime opportunities. And, and I'd be lying if I said in the, you know, the back of my mind, you, I mean, you have to hope for that, right? You have to hope to be of course, sort of yeah. at the center of it all. But uh, no, I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> and I think, I think that would be a really interesting experience. But um, yeah, I think sneakily, you kind of hope for that. All right. Uh, if you end up, you know, going like becoming one of these experts on MSNBC or <laughs> Or Fox or CNN, please don't let don't, don't let us hate you. Just you know, keep keep re, re, remember the little people is what I'm saying. Don't uh, don't don't go to the Washington parties with like uh, you know Eugene Robinson or whoever else is part or Chris Matthews, whoever else is part of that circle these days. Stay true yeah, to the no. uh, hang out. Still still stay true to your baseball people. You know, hang out, hang out. Hang out at the Marriott. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if for no other reason than I'm, you know, forced mingling sort of causes me great anxiety, which I realize will be a problem in this in this new job. Um, I, I don't think we have to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, well, in all, but in all honesty, I mean, this is an amazing opportunity, and I, I have great admiration for you. There are people who would not um, take the leap, but I think, uh, one, I think it's going to be an amazing experience, and two, I just think it's, uh, it's very cool. Uh, Chelsea Janes. Has uh, been a Nationals uh, beat reporter for the Washington Post since 2014. After the new year, as she said, she will become a politics and campaign reporter for the 2020 presidential election. She does not have her assignment yet, but that will happen in January. And if you read the Post, as I certainly do, and I um, I push anybody to subscribe, it is, in my opinion, uh, regardless of Chelsea's on this podcast or not, the best newspaper <laughs> in the United States um, and well worth your subscription so you can check out her work there uh chelsea uh, i got i have great admiration for what you've done and i think like i said the reason i uh wanted to reach out is i just think you're about to like embark on something so really really cool and i and i admire you uh, jumping into that breach and thank you very much today for coming on the sports media podcast and talking about it yeah thank you so much for having me it's, it's been an honor all right back in the studio my thanks to chelsea james for a really really interesting conversation and uh, without uh, further ado, let us go to Bruce Feldman of The Athletic and Fox Sports. All right, and as promised at the top, we bring in Bruce Feldman, uh, first my colleague at The Athletic, the uh, the national college football writer and reporter. If you follow college football, you know Bruce Feldman very well, his uh, excellent work over multiple decades. He is also a Fox sideline reporter for college football, but... This past week, he's certainly welcome to talk about it. I think he did his first NFL game. I know he did the Bills, Lions. And so that's very, very cool. Bruce is somebody I've known for years. Uh, going back to his days at ESPN, I have great admiration for him. I should say he's also the co-host of the of a podcast with our fellow athletic colleague, Stu Mandel. And Bruce Feldman joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Good morning, Bruce. I know you're in California. It's morning for you. Yeah, good morning, Richard. Good to be on here. I appreciate uh, I appreciate the kind of words. Yeah, you've I, we, amazingly enough, I, you've never been on a podcast of mine. I'm not exactly sure why, uh, but uh, well, but you've had we've... Adnan on for like 36 <laughs> times. So I figured that's true. I, yeah, that's true. Ad, yeah, Adnan. Uh, 
He's my Gary Shandling, basically. He's my, 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 my guest who comes on all the time. All right, Bruce, I don't know where you want to start. We could start with you and Mandel getting on my case for not putting you in a podcast speech, which I said I would not put anybody from The Athletic on. We could start about – we could talk about college football reporting. We can talk about navigating your broadcast work with reporting for The Athletic. Is there any place you would like to start? I will, I will – as a pod, you're a podcast host, so I'm happy to turn it over to you. Well, I feel like since it's your podcast, I should let you steer it. Um, <laughs> you know, since Stu's my boss and he's abundantly clear that that he'd probably be pushing for you to talk about the Audible first. All right, so here we go. So, uh, I mean, you know, you got you guys reached out to me, but I, I know you were doing it in sort of good fun. The reason, of course, I did a big podcast piece. It was really actually very cool to do, talking to people uh, who have had success in the medium from Shireen Ahmad, who um, does the uh, Burn It All Down podcast. Jade Hoy has been a podcast producer um, uh, for many great basketball podcasts. Jody Abergan who is uh, sort of the, the the force behind 30 for 30. And it was just interesting to sort of talk to people who are really, really successful at podcasts and how they've done it, and then to mention all sorts of interesting podcasts that I have come across or that people had suggested to me. The one thing, Bruce, and you're welcome to mention the Audible on this, but um, I, I don't really listen to a lot of college football podcasts. That That's not a knock on college football. It's just – it's not – you know, I usually end up listening to more basketball podcasts and some other kind of podcasts. But I do want to ask you, being that you have been in the space, you and Mandel have been in the space for a long time. Are there a ton of college football podcasts, or do you feel like it, um, the space isn't as sort of robust as basketball and football, pro football, and some of the other content areas? I don't. I don't think it is as robust as some of those other ones. Now, look, the. Uh... To me, one of the best ones of, across any sport is the Solid Verbal Podcast. Yep. Dan Rubenstein and Ty Hildebrand have been doing that one for uh, a decade. They're, it's a really well-done podcast. They're both very good at the medium, um, and they care about it a lot. And they've developed a really loyal uh, fan base and listenership, and I, I, so I have my hats off to them. Stu and I have been doing the Audible probably for about five years and what's been fascinating for us is, is um, when you get into it, we've heard from so many people who are in the business who have, you know, just a, a week ago, I'm in New York, and I'm at this uh, football foundation event, basically for the College Football Hall of Fame event. And Dave Clawson, who's the head coach at Wake Forest, comes over to me and shows me his, starts showing me his iPhone and says, every, every Tuesday I go for a run and I listen to your podcast. And you get people in the business who talk about that. And so it's been cool to see the reaction to it because a lot of times, Stu and I have had a bunch of pretty big guests on it over the years, but mostly it's just him and I talking. And so it, it's, it's one of those, I don't even want to call it a labor of love because there's nothing hard about it, but it's just, it's, it's good to just kind of go free form on it. What we found is uh, there's been a really good following, especially in the college football world now, Beyond those, uh, you know, Ralph Russo, who, who's a terrific uh, reporter for AP, he's done one for a while. Uh, the Yahoo guys have been, have, you know, I think they do a, a more of a cross-college sport. Yep. It could be college basketball. And then there's another SB Nation one with Stephen Gottfried. Um, that, is, that, is a, that is another one that's got some pretty good traction. But I think mostly what you get is very regionalized or team-specific ones 
And it's not to say they're not well done. It's just that I think it's hard. Like I have a buddy out here, Ryan Abraham, who does a really nice job with his USC podcast and they really go all in. He's got a studio for it. I mean, it's like, I think they have a couple of different shows and I just think that, you know, the penetration is pretty strong. It's just when you have one specific, you're not going to get, you know, a Texas fan unless they happen to be playing that week. Listen. And so I think because college football is so much more regionalized than certainly the NFL or the NBA, I right. think that's probably why it's limited, you know, limited impact across the country. That that's that's interesting. One of the things that Jody Avergan said, and I thought he made a really good point, was that the part of the reason that the NBA sort of is at the forefront of this, obviously a lot of um a lot of twenty somethings, thirty somethings are big fans of it. They'd be sort of the ones to experiment in the podcast space and develop. But more than that, the early adopters to podcasting, particularly Grantland, were kind of basketball obsessed. And he thought it they were sort of the sport was sort of first to market in a way. In that that um because especially because of Grantland and because of the early podcast networks were so NBA heavy that th- that's sort of why that sport became really connected to podcasting and then all the other sports um have followed. One sport I think that still is underserved, but we're gonna see more and more podcast is hockey because I think you know this is one of the sort of things that obviously we we work at the athletic and I feel like they figured out a little bit of a market inefficiency is that there's hockey fans who really crave and want more coverage and so I feel like there's still a lot of growth and room to be had for many kinds of hockey podcasts including national hockey podcasts understanding that it's nowhere near as popular as basketball college football um pro football etc yeah, I, I certainly think that there's an audience. You know, one of the reasons why I feel like the athletic has gotten a lot of traction in college football, is, and I'm talking pretty much just from the content side, is because there's been a void of that content. Yeah. With the way ESPN.com, which had really been heavily invested, had 30 or 40 reporters out there, they scale back their coverage so much, and a lot of other places, including our former employer, SI just doesn't really have the travel budget to send people out to go for, you know, go chase good stories. Uh, there's not a lot of places that do that. So because the athletic has done that, uh, you know, you're serving the college football fan in a way that nobody else really is anymore. And so I can't say I'm a hockey fan at this stage of my life anymore, but um, I see the, you know, I see the, the numbers and some of the impact that our hockey coverage gets. And I think it's because, there's so passionate fans out there, and if if you can provide them content they can't get anywhere else, they're going to respond. So I could definitely see, you know, why the podcast space would 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 respond to that too, because there's just so many. I mean, I listen to podcasts all the time when I'm at the gym or going to the gym. I know a lot of other people are in the car and they do it. It's just um, it's just it's just a very comfortable medium for people who are big fans of the sport to kind of wade into that in a different way. Bruce, let me ask you about your sort of place in the college football universe, because you're very interesting to me. Uh, I just did a roundtable last week with Howard Beck, Candace Buckner, and uh, Surat uh, Sohi. And, um, you know, one of the things we talked about were the different roles that NBA media play, if that's sort of the right phrase. And there's like the newsbreakers, like the Woges and the Mark Steins and 
there's feature writers like Howard and Sirid and there's um uh, you know, there's a uh, long form, I'm sorry, there, there's sort of the analytics type of uh, writers like Zach Lowe. You are interesting in college football in that you're definitely a newsbreaker. And there aren't really a ton of them out there, but at the same time, you do features as well. And I wonder, it, it strikes me that in college football, um, I don't know if there's as many different roles sort of in the writing of the sport the way there is in the NBA? And that's not really a question for you. It's just more of a starting path for a conversation. Do you, I I imagine you think of yourself as sort of a mixture of a lot of different kind of um, roles in, in, in when it comes to sort of a college football media person. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I feel like when I was at ESPN Magazine, I started out as kind of an enterprise writer and that was something that the editors felt like I had a pretty good sense of stories uh, and then there was a void for a, for a college football beat person at the time. Quite honestly, over years, I have a I mean, I have a good Rolodex. I can get you know I know a lot of people. I, this is all I cover. Unlike a lot of other people who maybe college writers like you know Pat Forty, I worked with Pat's you know really heavily connected in basketball. So he's doing right. both sports. I mean, he probably does some Olympic stuff because of his interest in swimming. You know, Pete Thamel, another guy I worked with way back when. I mean, he, you know, Pete knows a ton. I mean, he knows a ton about college basketball and he's very, you know, connected. I don't have to balance those other things. I mean, it's, it's basically college football all year round. Now I'll go to the NFL combine and some other things, but it's a very small world in that regard where it's football. I'm not really drifting into college basketball. Like I once had to a little bit. The other thing I would say is when you talk about newsbreakers, you know, you mentioned Woj or Mark Stein on the NBA level and certainly on some of the other sports I see it with the NFL with Glazer or Schefter or somebody like that. Um, with college football, when I look at it, who's my competition to try to break a story? It's you, it's the local person right. more than I suspect it ever is for the people on the, on the professional team beats. It's not to say there aren't good, good uh, pro team beat writers, but I just think a lot of times the news you feel like you're competing with is for that person who may know some boosters or somebody else that, you know, you just can't know all those boosters if you're a national person. And that's where sometimes that news kind of seeps out from, or it's a parent of a player or something like that, where nationally, those are the things that you kind of, I don't see you have to be mindful of, but you kind of know that that's where your competition is. And then just as part of the job has evolved, um, you know, I feel like because I was at ESPN and because I, you know, it was, felt like I had to, you know, keep growing and keep, you know, keep uh, evolving. You know, there's nothing you can really say no to. You got to try it and, and, and be open to it. I mean, to me, one of the best things that ever happened in my career happened, I don't know, four or five years ago when Fox was, was basically closing down some of its, its uh, news reporter budget and operation. And, that ended up being the, the entry point for me to go become a sideline reporter. And it, it's something that I really love, but it's also, you know, kind of re-energizes me. And I think one of the challenges that you have, if you've been covering the same sport for a while is I think people get stale or it's almost human nature too. And so that's never happened to me. I still, still love what I get to do. I probably love it now more than I did 20 years ago. Bruce, one of the interesting things about your career is that you were at ESPN for a long time, and then in a relatively short span, you worked for Fox Sports, 
Sports Illustrated, and The Athletic. And I wonder what the last couple of years have been like for you in shift in, in sort of getting a chance to work at different places, uh, having to move to different places for whatever reason after such a long tenure at ESPN. Yeah, I moved so much, even skipped. I was at CBS for two years. So CBS, yeah, um, apologize. You're right. Yeah. I forgot that. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, I think what, what – I was at ESPN for 17 years. That was my only real adult job for a long time. And the only way I ever thought I would leave there was if I left the business entirely and tried to get into something like trying to write movies or something like that. Um, I never had any intention of leaving. I loved working there. I st- many of my – closest friends in the business are still there. Um, but you know, everything went down the way it went down and I had to react and I'm grateful that, that I had some opportunities to move on. Um, what I've found, and this is just, you know, anecdotal, it's just my own observation, but having worked at CBS and having worked at, at, at ESPN and now having worked at Fox, CBS and ESPN are more like than Fox is. And I don't know if that's as much a function because Fox is based in Los Angeles and the other two are based on the East Coast. But I just feel like the vibe of how it is 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 very different. Um, and you kind of, you know, when I went to SI, and since you don't want to work there, I don't feel, you know, uncomfortable saying this, but when I went to SI and I was talking to them after Fox Digital was restructuring and I was looking for a place to write, um, you know, I, I always respected the SI brand, but I had enough friends who'd been there to know it was on pretty shaky ground financially. And so when I went there and they were interested in me, um, I didn't know that they were about to lay off three or four really talented people, people who I am friends with. And I didn't know that at the time. And, and so you kind of sit there when you come out of that and you're like, God, this is a really messy industry. And the way I look at it is, you know, you sign contracts for, two years and that's long-term, you know, and you just kind of reevaluate as you go and you do the best job you can. And, and, um, you just, I I mean, if I was, if I was 25 coming into the business, I would look at it way differently than I, than I did when I was that age where I thought I'm going to be at ESPN forever. The, this, this industry just doesn't work like that. Um, it's rare for anybody to have that, you know, there, there's basically Kirk curb street and, then almost everybody else is kind of on a, you know, a revolving door. There's maybe, you know, the top one or two people at a, at a place who are the foundation of that place. And then everybody else is, feels like they're to some degree interchangeable. You, um, for, for those who don't know the story, you can Google Bruce Feldman and ESPN. I'm not going to go over it now, but uh, he was in the news in terms of when he left. It's very, very public, um, public leaving. I was somebody who wrote about that, I think sort of at the beginning of when I was covering media. Bruce, now that we're in 2018, your career has moved on. You're obviously in some great positions, uh, multi, in, in multi, you know, multimedia jobs. Do you look back on ESPN at all? Um, eh, how do I sort of phrase this? I, I know for a long time you had significant feelings about ESPN. Does that recede with time or are there still some hard feelings for you even now in 2018, given how you left? And by the way, I think you'd have an absolute right to have hard feelings. Yeah, there was a lot. Of, I was the first, first, I don't know, six months. I wasn't even like, I wasn't really sure what the heck had just gone on. 
I mean, I was already at CBS. I was still trying to process like kind of what just happened here. And then a little after that, I was pretty angry. And I think what, I mean, I'm being honest, you know, what was kind of happening to me was, you know, I was such an ESPN guy and I loved ESPN as a kid growing up. I remember the day my small town got ESPN as a channel when I was in high school, you know, it was like, I watched a ton of ESPN. And like I said, most of my closest friends were ESPN people. So, you know, when you see that, and then all of a sudden, even a lot of other stuff will be like, you know, your, your Facebook friends with them. And when people tout, oh, these great things about ESPN or whatever, it kind of rubs you the wrong way a little bit. And I, I mean, just, it just, it took me a while to go well, wait a minute. Everyone's talking about how, like, how great this company is and how, you know, how special ESPN is. And I didn't feel like my, my end there was particularly special or, or, or heartfelt. So it took me a while to get to, to kind of work through that. It didn't, you know, it, every once in a while I would run into somebody who I felt like either had some kind of, they were more on the business side when it was ever the, the people you would call front facing, you know, whether it was, you know, the people like Kirk or Jesse Palmer, those people, like I always had good relationships with them. It was, it's always been good. It never changed. Uh, Joe Tessitore has been like, like family to me and that stayed throughout. But whatever was for the people on the, the more corporate side, the people behind the scenes, I always felt like it could get a little awkward and cause they wouldn't know what to say and anything. But when you'd have those conversations at times over time, I felt better after it was almost like a clearing the air and I always felt better. Um, so it probably took a couple of years, but you know, I've definitely moved past it. Um, and I'm in a better place mentally. I mean, look, I'm grateful. I feel like I'm in a really good place and I feel fortunate that it worked out the way it did for me. Um, but I also understand, like I said, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of old ESPN people and they've had a bunch of layoffs and I've seen some of the bitterness and frustration that they have for it after a time. And I get it. There's, there's, that goes on in the rest of the world too. It's not just sports media, but it's sports media is that our world. So those are the people, you know, and you, you feel for them when they feel like they've been, you know, dealt a cold reality. So I, I can, I can relate to that in, in a lot of ways, but, but for now, I mean, it's, it's been a while, but I feel like I'm, you know, I'm in a good place and, and those feelings are gone and, and, um, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. One more question on ESPN and then we'll, uh, then I want to talk to you about sort of college football coverage. The, um, there's no doubt that they are absolutely committed to the broadcast side of college football. You see the on-air hires that they make. They still obviously cover a massive amount of games, including on their streaming services. The one place, though, Bruce, I have to be honest, where I'm really surprised that they have um, they've ceded a lot of turf or a lot of territory is the sort of the print digital coverage of college football, particularly the ESPN.com coverage. Um, I understand. I guess getting a not that I particularly like it, but I I can understand the business reasons of not writing as much about certain sports if you're not a rights holder. But ESPN is the dominant. No, no disrespect to your employer at Fox Sports, but ESPN is the dominant college football force in the United States. Yet on the digital side, they they have really let go of a lot of people who have written for them over the last decade what do you what do you make of that it, it does it's an interesting and kind of odd dichotomy to me because there's such players on the broadcast side they've kind of seeded so much turf, turf on the digital side 
Yeah, it is curious to me, too. Um, look, when I left ESPN and I was on the magazine headcount, when I left, you know, it's not to say they didn't hire good writers because they really did, but they, I don't think they hired any college football people who were connected in the sport. You know, they just didn't. I mean, they had more enterprise people, and that was the direction they, you know, they opted to go in. Um, when it comes to the website, so they had, I don't know, 40-plus people who were canvassed around the country and cranking out content, maybe almost like McDonald's of content, which is probably right. – too much but they when they had the layoffs and they laid off a lot of really good people like i think of the the ted millers and yeah the, max olson and, and some of those so, some of those younger folks who are really good and you're like oh, that doesn't even make sense why they made some of these moves but they made the moves and then the the upshot is when i see the content there's still talented people there like i mean jake trotter is a guy who you know, selfishly, I would like to have seen them let him go because then we could have tried to hire him. But he covers the Big 12. He's done a couple of really, really terrific stories this season. Um, you know, and I, I know they have people like Adam Rittenberg and Andrew Adelson who still, you know, go go out and report and find good stuff. But I don't think the philosophy is the same for whatever reason. I don't know why it is. Um and I'm not there anymore, so it's not probably not fair for me to speak on it. But I just know that they, as you said, they used to be so invested in those stories, and now they they just seem to have pulled back for some reason. And I don't quite get the philosophy. But again, I understand that there's make there's a lot of shifts going on there. But it's different. It is very different than they are they are in other sports, and I don't I don't quite understand because, like you said. I mean, they do college football. That is the thing that ESPN does better than any sport they have. Their best studio show is obviously that on college game day. They own the they own the playoff, which is the biggest thing to own. Right. They own, I don't know, 95% of the bowl games. I mean, you know, us and CBS, Fox and CBS will still get some big ratings, ticket items because of some of the conferences we have. But for the most part, you know, ESPN is college football more than ESPN is any other sport. So it's it's curious that they're not – their philosophy on the digital side doesn't seem to reflect that. Yeah, I mean, I'll be very honest. I think it's a missed opportunity, and I think they've allowed the athletic to come into that space and take it. Now, neither of us know what the long-term future of the athletic is. Obviously, both of us are rooting for it, and we're going to work hard to do our best that there is a long-term future. But it's surprising because everything you said about ESPN is correct. They have every built-in advantage and I am surprised that you wouldn't want to try to extend your reach digitally, um, just given that you have this incredible platform in ESPN.com to get that, not to mention the magazine. But um, but I appreciate you answering that. Um, all right, here's where I um, here's what where I want to. Uh, oh, you know what? Here, one last thing, actually, before we get to the my discussion with you that we always have, sort of either when we're slacking each other or direct messing each other about the coverage of college football and college athletics. But this is interesting. You, Because you have a role as a broadcaster, part of the broadcast team when you're doing sidelines on Fox, you are privy to production meetings with coaches and just a different kind of relationship with coaches that TV affords you as a rights holder than you would as a traditional print digital person. How do you navigate that broadcast work with reporting for the athletic because i would imagine um 
there could be times when you are told something in a production meeting that the likelihood is a coach might not ever tell you as a member of the athletic. So I wonder how do you how you navigate those two worlds? Yeah, there is an, there is something to finesse there because things that are said to you in those meetings, you know, it, it's I don't want to call it a gray area, but it's it's a part where things can get um, can get said on a broadcast that can reach, you know, you know, we had games that are you know four, six, seven million people audience. Yeah. Um, so it's not like they're off the record things, but I just think sometimes when they if and I take notes on everything, like as do my colleagues, you know, Brady Quinn and Joe Davis do too, and I'm sure everybody else who does these games, you know, sits there with a the laptop and everything. But, you know, they they may read differently when they're in print than they do otherwise. And there's been a lot of times where I've used those things for stories because the level of depth I'm going to get um, through that access is probably better than, than most people may be able to get. And so there are times where I will just give somebody a heads up, say, Hey, I'm going to use this on this or what, or whatnot. But you just, I think it comes back to the experience and how you have to, how you have to balance it. Um, I'll give you an example of something this season. So we had a game um, around mid season and the best player on the team, I found out on my own um, through a source was not going to play that following that, that game that week. And I found out on a Tuesday from a source I trusted. Now I did give a heads up to my producer and um, and our and Joe and Brady, the guys I work with, for basically so hey, you know we don't have to go all in. You know, like if there's stuff we're planning on this particular player, let's scale back. Um, but I did not go out with it because. I and I probably would have if it was if it was um, a, a game that I wasn't doing. And the reason why is because on you know Thursday or Friday when we met with that coach, if I'm reporting something that may contradict something he's saying, or you know he said, well the player's day to day, and I know he's not going to play, um, it could it can make an awkward it could make the meeting more awkward to be honest. And that's a judgment I made. Nobody at Fox has told me. To do that or not, but that was my own determination. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just lay low on that. And then before the game goes on, I'm gonna report that I'm gonna report what I know. But you know, I've seen Jay Glazer make this comment before, and I, you know, I give him respect because he doesn't need to, you know, he can do it this way. He's like, I work for Fox, I don't work for Twitter, and you know, obviously, I want to break as much news as I can and get it out as 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 fast and quickly as I can, but there are certain situations where honestly you have to you have to 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 manage them. And in that case, it was one where I was like, "All right, I'm gonna hold," and I can tell my employers that, but we didn't go with it until Saturday Saturday morning. The um, one of the things that um, if you talk to people who come from either a newspaper or uh, you know, for like a better word, print background, print digital background. They say when they get on television, it ultimately really helps them uh, in terms of access with coaches and or players because there's just something about television that people, um, especially younger people, connect with. Have you found that the more you do TV, the more people see your face on TV, the more either recognized and or that helps you with access and reporting? 
Absolutely. Um, there's a familiarity that puts it in a different place. Um, it's, it's across the board. Uh, you see it with, with certainly the people you cover. Um, I think you see it to, to some degree with the teams you cover because they, they know the, the, um, the reach that it has. I mean, I, I don't, I can't speak a ton on the NFL cause I've done one game. It's not like I'm this big veteran, but I can say this, the level of access and the level of transparency. And some of this is certainly, most of this I think is generated by the league. Um, right. you know, whether the, I was blown away by how much detailed injury information you get and you are fed when I'm working at a college game. Look, I'm not trying to say I'm Norma Ray out there, but I am hustling to find out because colleges, most of them, do not want to reveal anything. So you have to hustle and, and, and work it and try to find out. In the NFL, there's a lot of stuff. They, they are basically looking for you on the sideline to give you the updates. And so, um, you know, again, I think some of that is people know the visibility. I think people also know the platform that you have when they, you reach millions of people where – and I think there's just there's a level of I don't want to say skepticism, but almost apathy towards towards the written word. I think a lot of times, and it's unfortunate, but I think that's just the way things are now. All right, so here's where I want to finish with Bruce. This is something me and you talk about all the time, and this is certainly not a criticism of you because I don't think you you do this at all. But and um, and again, it's a little bit of a generalization, but but I think the generalization sort of comes from a true place. I find when I watch college sports, it's not just college football, it's college football and college basketball, that, and I'm specifically talking about more broadcast than anything else, the deification of coaches is very hard for me to sort of swallow and watch. And I think it's it ultimately can be very dangerous in that it, it gods up some of these people so much that they feel that they're untouchable and that the biggest sort of watchdog or should the biggest place that should be a watchdog is much more auxiliary PR than anything else. And we just see this in, you know, whether it's broadcasters talking about coaches overcoming adversity and tough seasons when the, when the, when the, when the stuff is self-inflicted, we, in my opinion, rarely see significant discussion of the ills of college football or college basketball, unless it gets to the point where, Somebody is like at a Rick Patino situation where you obviously have to talk about it. But I feel that the broadcast networks are they're they're part of the big problem of the underbelly of college sports because they ultimately end up funding all this stuff and funding all the underbelly. And maybe that's a little too unfair to put the blame on the ESPNs and the Foxes and the CBSs, et cetera. But I did want to just get your opinion on it as somebody who obviously is sort of sees all this stuff on on both sides. It's it's very frustrating sometimes as a viewer just to hear about the greatness and sort of deification of the coaches where these players who are not being paid um, are often criticized for not performing and stuff like that. Well, you know, like the, the, the argument, the conversation you and I have had, because I felt like you had said it was always college football. In my case, is college basketball does it even more so i mean the example i would use is is bob knight and yeah and the you know the the treatment he's got even rick patino look and um you know i think that's 
I think part of this comes with the TV side. You are broadcast partners with these places. And for a lot of times, the college coaches, and this is certainly reflective of college football, and I, I think it goes for college basketball, those programs often define are defined by who the coach is. Whereas with the exception of like Bill Belichick, um, you know, for the most part, it feels like the coaches are more transient than, than they are with, with colleges. And so, you know, I'm not, this is probably a, an excuse as much as an explanation, but I think that's where it starts from. And then I think the other part of this is, look, most of the people who are doing the games um, you know, are either former coaches or they're former players and they have, and they see things from a certain perspective that is much different than if they were say a, uh, you know, a reporter who has no connection or, or in some ways to some degree an adversarial relationship. And I think what, what you see a lot in college football on TV as much as anything is there, you know, if you're a Yankees fan, you grew up watching the Yankee broadcast on WPIX or whatever local channel. And so you kind of got the Homer broadcast, right? Right. Um, I think with college football, there isn't that, there is no, you know, unless you listen to radio, you're getting the national side. And I think that's part of it where I think the broadcasters, and again, I can't speak for everybody, but I think they know you're speaking to a, a pretty specific audience. Now, it's not to say that if you do an Ohio State-Indiana game that there aren't Michigan or Texas fans watching, but for the most part, you're seeing those teams that are, you know, the, that audience reflected of those two teams, and you're going in and you're going to sit down with these meetings with these coaches, you're going to hear their perspective, you're going to probably hear some stuff to explain why things either aren't as bad as they seem or aren't as good as they seem. But, you know, for the most part, I feel like the broadcast crews uh, really lean on those schools for whatever access they get. And I think for a lot of, a lot of times it's almost human nature to, to, I don't want to call it to have it to, to pay it back, but I think that's where some of it, some of it certainly comes from. Um, the other thing I would say and this is, uh, I'd be curious your, your own thoughts on this. So a few, two years ago, we did a Texas Tech-Oklahoma game. It turned out to be this wild Pat Mahomes versus Baker Mayfield yeah. game. But in the context nice. of that, Joe Mixon um, was going to be more of a featured player. The starter, Samaje Ryan was hurt. Texas Tech's defense was horrible. And I remember bringing up in our morning, it was a night game on Big Fox, and I remember bringing up to, in, our, in our production meeting, uh, if Joe Mixon goes off and runs for 200 yards or whatever, I think we need to talk about his off-field issues. And, you know, to say that in the context of a broadcast, and I, I had written up specifically what it was for a lot of people, you know, this is why they know who Joe Mixon is and went into this specific court case and a domestic violence issue. And it really ran over the course of two plays. And everybody, you know, our play-by-play guy, Joe, was on board. Our producers were on board. And so it was very... You know, it wasn't like there was a lot of editorializing, but it was clear what we were going to delve into. And you know when you get into that stuff that the people who are listening to that, most of them are Oklahoma fans who are going to go, why are you bringing this up now? I just want to watch the game. And I think that there is a a um, a, a, a definite, let's say, balance of 
okay, there's a lot of people who think, let's just stick this on the pregame show, or that's, a, that's an issue that I just want to watch the game. But at the same point, I think there, there does have to be some balance. I'm not saying it's something that goes through the course of the whole, the whole broadcast, but you know, we did a Baylor game the year after Art Riles and the AD and Ken Starr, the president of school, were all fired after a horrific scandal. And you can't ignore it, but at the same point, it's like how much of the broadcast is going to be about that? I mean, it's not, um, you know, it's not the, it's not, it wasn't their first game back, but at the same point, you still can't, I mean, it's the elephant in the room. And towards what you said about certainly um, the adversity question, I know this came up a lot with Ohio State after the yeah, Urban game. Meyer. Yep. I, yeah, I had done a sit-down with Urban Meyer, and then afterwards we had our, uh, we ran it in our Big Ten pregame on Fox on a Saturday night. And one of the things that I was mindful of was like, hey, look, saying exactly what you just said, which was, yeah, the adversity, but in his case, a lot of this was self-inflicted. And it stemmed from the the handling he had of, of Zach Smith, this, this assistant coach who should not have been there and certainly should not have been there anywhere as long, as long as he was there. And so you, know, you say that, but then at the same time, as you come through it, and I thought about this because we did the Maryland-Texas game in the opener where they had a tragedy where one of the players passed away, Jordan McNair, right. is when you, when you speak about a team, and a, this, this goes certainly for Twitter where everything gets parsed and re, you know, re-examined, uh, sometimes you can talk about, the, you may talk about the players, and I've been very cautious to say the players rather than you know, lump it all together and say that, you know, this team. But when you say what the players have experienced, because a lot of times, and this certainly holds true with, with Maryland, and I definitely think this holds true having been around the Ohio State program a bunch, the players, the players did nothing wrong in these cases. The players, I don't want to say that were, you know, the victims or whatnot. Obviously, Jordan McNair's situation is tragic. But when it comes to the players and where people come at the school and come out the program, and like they probably do on social media, you know, I can get where there's an us and them. And again, the Ohio state players, um, they had, they did nothing wrong in all this. And so you're trying to balance that awareness. Cause I saw, I was around the Maryland players before that, before that, uh, before the game where they came back to beat Texas, I saw how real the emotion was of, of what they had been through. And so you want to honor that. So uh, that's what I guess I'm trying to say. It's like it's, it's so unwieldy because you want to honor the players and the people who go through a lot of this stuff. And sometimes people hear something and they'll, and they'll say, well, I don't agree with that because this guy, whether it's Bobby Petrino or, you know, Art Bryles or whatever, and it completely, you know, puts everything else, you know, gets lumped together. And I don't think it's that simple. The um, here's what I'd say, and I, listen, I you know, I appreciate you talking about it. We can sort of do a whole podcast on this. I, I'm in the minority, for sure, in wanting it to be on the game. I, I admit, I think most viewers don't. They disagree with me. The reason I want it is because I I believe that's the most impactful place where if you're going to have honesty and transparency, and have a real discussion on stuff. That that's where the most viewers are. That's where you could really have the most impact. If you were going to talk about the nexus of sexual assault in college athletics, that's where you, you could have a real conversation and it, and it might have impact. But I get it that I think the majority of fans don't want that. They want the game to be 
the game. So I understand that. Where I, I and this is just again my opinion, Bruce. Where I would feel a little better would be if the studio shows I felt like sort of handled it a little more intellectually sound. If they had different types of voices, where it's just not a former coach or a former player, and usually the time that that coach has relationships at times, even with the people who are playing. If they would bring in just outside voices, you almost never see a woman on those panels having any kind of opinion. If there's a woman on that panel, it's usually the host who's moving the conversation left and right. So I feel like if the in and this is not just college football, this would be college basketball too. If the studio shows did a better job of handling these issues, I think maybe my own opinion would be a little bit different about the game. But I just feel like these broadcasts, generally speaking, are PR. By and large, yes, there's sometimes discussion about stuff, but as a general rule, everybody's a rights holder. Everybody's just trying to sort of keep the status quo to keep the money train rolling in. And again, I don't want to be a hypocrite. If I was Eric Shanks or Jimmy Pataro or John Skipper before that, maybe I'd be doing the same thing because that's my job is to get eyeballs and to make money. But as a as a viewer, it gets very frustrating for me because I just feel like even the broadcasts are designed to keep the power in power. That that's my filibuster. Yeah, I don't. I mean, look, I I get it, and at the end of the day, it is a business. And the the point you make, you know, I I understand it. But it like once, even if you get into the game and start, you know, talking about say, oh, this is the biggest platform to have to have it. Um, it's you know, I think you'd get such a pushback on that. You would that it yep. becomes. You know, it, it becomes a, a a deal where I think it's just not practical for for places. And I'm not a decision maker in that. I mean, you know, I'm you know, in in it, it relates to the games. I mean, you know, I go through my producer to get stuff on, and it's not to say it's like necessarily like this kind of issue, certainly. But it's like you know, there's decisions that get made um, all the time in a hurry. You know, because you don't know how the course of a game is even going to play out. So to sit and say, okay, we're going to have this discussion. We got to have it at some point. Um, you know, I just think that sometimes it's, it's, it's unwieldy. Sometimes it's not practical. And I just think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, the people who are turning in are turning in for the game. And if you can get that someplace else, I mean, I, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm like walking up a hill here because it's just, I understand the journalistic side of it. And I understand the impact side of it. And, and I've done a bunch of stuff where there've been, you know, stories about Brenda Tracy and the work she's done. But I think that, you know, I just, I just don't think there's the audience is going to be as receptive of that because again, I think they're just tuning in to watch a football game. And it's not to say you can't get something in there, but I just think the discussion point is to me that's separate than the part you're talking about. Like I think that what you brought up when it comes to let's say, are there enough strong female voices, you know, into this discussion? No, I don't. I think the answer is not. I thought one of the things that a few years ago, College Game Day had Samantha Ponder on there. I'm, uh, I, I want to say it was around the Baylor time, and I thought she really did. Um, hammer home some points in ways that yeah, maybe some agreed. of her colleagues couldn't. And I thought that had a lot of value. Um, and I haven't seen enough of the show because just because I'm working on Saturdays too, to see if there have been topics like that, where 
because they, they still have Jen Latta and they still have other female voices on that show. But there aren't that many places now where they have that much real estate for it. I mean, last year, when everything was going on with Michigan State between the Larry Nasser stuff and it had, you know, it, it carried over to, into the rest of the athletic department, we had Fox had a, um, or Fox FS1 had a Michigan State College basketball game. It was in the heat of this. And they had me come in to talk about just some of the issues and how they're being dealt with you know, with, whether it's football and basketball related in the studio, just because I think, you know, my reporting background is probably different than some of the other people we have. But at the same time, you know, it, it's you, you go with who you have and sometimes people aren't that comfortable um, digging into it, digging into a topic and, you know, not having enough time to get into it. I mean, we could talk about plenty about, you know, Urban Meyer's case. I mean, I did Colin Coward's show, for you know a week, you know straight when we were talking about some of that stuff. But some of the other things, unless it's one of those shows, they usually don't have the bandwidth to really get into them the way they probably need to, or probably give it the give it the the the, the attention and the probably depth it probably requires. Uh, again, I appreciate you um, you addressing that, and I just so you know, people who are listening to this, no, I agree with you. I, I, I am absolutely in the minority when it comes to wanting that kind of conversation on a broadcast. I, I am sure that most, um, most people watching do not want, want that. And no doubt this is not just a college football thing. Anyone who followed Bobby Knight's tenure or higher at ESPN knows full well the kind of, um, I mean, it's really just kind of disgraceful what they sort of allowed that guy to do in terms of being a broadcaster there. And there's probably a larger argument even whether that guy should have been hired, particularly after his treatment of ESPN staffers. But as Bruce and I both know, um, short of being O.J. Simpson, generally speaking, a broadcast network will hire you. Um, Bruce, is there anything else you want to discuss before we – before we jettison, before I before I allow you to start your your day. No, that is it. Um, I, again, I uh, I appreciate the the opportunity a little bit, and um, you know, it's uh, I'm glad people have these discussions at the same point. You know, because just as somebody who's in the middle of it, um, you know, I pay attention to it. It's at the same point. It's everything's pretty nuanced, and I don't think when you're sitting maybe back at your computer, and I do this sometimes too. Um, is you tend to think things are black and white and how they right. get thought of or discussed, and they usually aren't. But you just, I, I, guess, I guess until you're in the middle of it, you just don't really realize how many, you know, not everything is cut and dry as much as, as sometimes we, we want to think it is. And, and again, that's, that's just kind of a, a reality. And I think the more time you spend in the business, the more time you kind of see it that way. Um, and maybe it can be frustrating, and it can be, but I just think that's that's kind of the world you end up kind of getting into. Yeah, it's well said. And again, I, I think it is. I, I am very self aware. It is easy for me to say what I'm saying in my position. If I was a manager at ESPN, nor would I ever be. But if I was management at ESPN, I would probably have a different POV. So I I I, I sort of certainly understand the you know, the advantages of sort of not having any kind of finances on the line, not having to deal with these conversations with college administrators or 
college presidents. Before I let Bruce go, I will say this, um, just because I have him here, and it's worth for people listening this uh, to hear. Um, Bruce has been a really huge addition for The Athletic. The business is about people coming in and subscribing to the product because they want to read writers slash writers and stories. And, uh, you know, like Ken Rosenthal and Jason Stark and and Katie Strang and some of the other big names that The Athletic has, Bruce Feldman was a huge hire for The Athletic because he brought up um, – we're allowed to curse on this podcast, Bruce. He brought a shitload of people um, under the tent. So just on a personal note, I really appreciate that because the more people like Bruce – who joined the athletic, uh, the more my landlord in Toronto appreciates it. So Bruce, I'm glad that, well, uh, I'm glad you're here. That is nice to hear. I, I thank you for that. You didn't need to say that, but, um, look, yeah, I, I genuinely, when I tell people this, I love what I get to do. Um, I really do. And that hasn't changed. If anything, I love it even more. So, um, it's been fun and I'm, I'm thankful for the people who subscribe and, and who, who want, who want more and want more depth and, and uh, who want a better reading experience? Because if I yeah, get up I mean, at 5 a.m. and I don't want to wake up the house, I don't want to click on a story where I get autoplay pop up. <laughs> right. So. I mean, the fact is, it really is. A good, I mean, forget the fact that we're working there. Like, objectively, it is a great site. Again, we will see if it lasts or not. But objectively, the content is great. And our bosses really give a shit about the user experience. And those are like two things that I cannot tell you how much I appreciate. All right, Bruce Feldman is a I don't even know what your title is at the Athletic. Are you a senior writer or national college football uh, columnist? Whatever I am. I'm probably uh, let's just say a reporter. All right. Bruce Feldman is a reporter for the Athletic. He's a uh, sideline reporter at Fox Sports and he is the co-host and co-founder of is it officially the Audible podcast? Is that right? It is the Audible. I think I should be the founder because I actually predated Stu a couple. Of, like, Did you? Okay, so you are the founder and founder and co-host of the Audible. Check that out on Apple Podcasts, uh, um, Stitcher, Art19, wherever you can get your college football podcast. All right, Bruce Feldman, thank you very much for joining us on the Sports Media Podcast, and uh, I, I know I will be in touch with you in, uh, very shortly in some medium since we're, we're talking all the time. All right. Thank you very much for joining Thank you, Richard. Joining. I appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chelsea Janes and Bruce Feldman for interesting conversations. As always, thanks to Lou Pellegrino, who has not been uh, on this podcast for a couple of weeks. We'll try to rectify that for the next one. Lou's, uh, Lou's radio voice, quite frankly, is better than essentially any person he works with as talent. Between Trina and myself, Wojnowski, Bob Ryan, Mike Lupica, Lou's voice is much better than ours. He should probably be doing this stuff. Um... Previous podcast guests include a NBA roundtable with Howard Beck, Candace Buckner, and Sirit Sohi. Uh, we had Tom Verducci before that. And then just go down the wrist, Rebecca Lobo, LaChina Robinson, Kirk Minahan, Troy Aikman, Kate Abdow, Rachel Nichols, Candace Parker, Jamel Hill. If you like this kind of conversation, including our roundtables, and we'll have one shortly, please check out the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. And leave us a review. That is how this podcast remains. All right, like I said, for Lou Pellegrino and for Cadence 13, this is Richard Deitch. Happy holidays, and we'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.